This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, interviewing Dr. Kathleen Schmaler, who is a Associate Professor in Gynecologic Oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and also the Chair Training and Mentoring Committee of the IGCS. We're going to talk today a little bit about the subject of uh, global um, healthcare for women with gynecologic cancer. And of course, obviously, Kathleen has done a great deal in this area. So welcome, Kathleen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, Kathleen, would you just give us some uh, brief overview of your international work in uh, cancer prevention and women's health? Sure. Um, so I'm working in several areas, uh, primarily in cervical cancer uh, prevention and treatment. Um, we have programs through the International Gynecologic Cancer Society where we started the Global Curriculum and Mentoring uh, Program, which is a program um, to train uh, gynecologic oncologists in regions of the world that don't have formal gynecologic oncology training. Um, so the program started um, a couple of years ago, um, really spearheaded by the IGCS president, Dr. Michael Quinn, um, and then led by Joe Nang from uh, Singapore, um, Lina Schwang um, from Connecticut, as well as Tom Randall from Boston. Um, and we have uh, have pilot programs in several regions of the world where um, we're training gynecologic oncologists um, in collaboration with international mentors from um, countries that have formal gynecologic oncology training. Um, so that's one area. Another area is um, doing research in collaboration with Rice University here in, um, in Houston, along with Dr. Rebecca Richards-Cordum, um, to develop low-cost uh, technologies uh, to improve the screening and diagnosis for cervical cancer. So along the, uh, the work that you've been doing, what do you see as the greatest uh, barriers thus far in access to care for women uh, with gynecologic cancer around the world? So in most places, it's, it's really just that, and it's access to care and access to um, free or low-cost screening. Um, but the, the other barrier that we've seen over and over is when a screening program is set up and a woman has abnormal results, um, that there isn't a good system to navigate her to diagnostic care. Um, to get a leap or a cone, colposcopy, um, and that's a big problem. And a lot of times it's um, knowledge and sort of the education of the patient and really helping her to get somewhere. But the other thing we found is that there's a real shortage of providers trained um, to provide those services. Um, and it's not just internationally. We have the same problem here in the U.S. Um, I do a lot of work um, in the Rio Grande Valley uh, region along the Texas-Mexico border um, where there's a, a real shortage of um, providers to, to do colposcopy and LEAP. Um, so we've instituted a big program there that has, you know, centered primarily on the training um, of these advanced practice providers um, to be able to, to provide those services for the women who have the abnormal screening results. Um, one thing, at least here we see in the U.S., is it's rare that we see someone with advanced cervical cancer who's never had a pap. Most of the time, what we hear is that they had a pap and it was abnormal, and they either didn't have the money to, to be able to 
get colposcopy or leap. They um, didn't have, you know, there was nowhere in um, their area to be able to go, or they were scared and didn't know that they should really follow up because they were asymptomatic. So that's very interesting that you talked about training um, advanced nurse providers. Um, what has been your experience so far with the success of that program, both here in the United States and abroad? Yeah, so here in the United States, I mean, at, at MD Anderson, our colposcopy clinic um, is primarily staffed by uh, physician assistants and nurse practitioners. Um, so they all receive additional training and uh, being able to do these procedures. So um, it works very, very well. Uh, the same along the border, there's a real shortage of uh, physicians and certainly of OBGYNs. Um, and a lot of uh, nurse practitioners, uh, physician assistants, midwives, um, primary care doctors um, have been able to get this training, uh, which has been really terrific and really nice for the patients so that they don't have to go to yet another clinic or see, uh, see a new provider. Um, in other regions of the world, I think it's it's also a great opportunity. Um, again, there's a huge shortage of providers and certainly of specialists. Um, so to train nurses um, and other advanced practice providers to be able to perform these procedures, um, I think is really um, the ideal the ideal scenario. Well, one of the uh, one of the areas that often comes up in discussion is. Uh, not only access to care, but also the type of care that patients are getting. And one of the questions that always um, is discussed uh, when talking about this particular topic is, should the standards that we have in, in the United States, for example, or in high-resource countries uh, be different in the setting of low-resource countries based on the, the, the access to, to, the, to the technology or to the expertise of, uh, of the gynecologic oncologist? Yeah, that's a great question. So even just to take a step back to the screening, you know, in the U.S., we've decreased our cervical cancer rates by 70% um, over the last 50 years, really because of the introduction of the, the pap test and then organized screening. Um, so it's been a huge success. But if you look at how that works, um, the patients actually have to come in for three visits. So they come in and get screening with a pap or now with HPV testing as well, depending on their age. If that's abnormal, they have to come back for colposcopy and biopsies. And then if that shows high-grade disease, they have to come back for a, a third test or a third procedure with a leap or a, a cold, cold knife cone or cryotherapy. Um, and, it, you know, again, it's been incredibly successful in the U.S. and Europe and in other high-resource countries, but it's failed in other parts of the world. Um, and the reason is, at every step in that process, you need pathology services. And if you look at the number of pathologists available in Africa and other parts of the world, there's just not the, the capacity to be able to do this. Plus, you need the specialized labs that can process you know, pap tests, HPV tests. So that's really been, um, been a big problem. So. Um, you know, a couple of solutions. One is to develop better technologies, and we're really seeing that with the HPV test, and as more and more tests become available, and hopefully, you know, truly will become point-of-care tests, that helps that process. The other thing besides needing the pathologists or gynecologists um, or other specialists is that you um, also need to have that woman come back all those times. So that's that's why it, it you know, cervical cancer is still the number one cancer in, in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa. 
Africa, um, and the number one or number two cancer in many countries in Central America or South America. Um, so really, we're failing right from the beginning. Um, and then the, the next step is if they do develop cancer, there's truly no one who has the expertise in gynecologic oncology to get them the, the proper care. Um, so that's the program that IGCS is working on with a global curriculum program is to be able to train more providers. So if we were to ask ourselves, well, how can we help as gynecologic oncologists, pathologists, or radiation oncologists, as I listen to this conversation and I'm driven to, to somehow help, uh, what would be your recommendation? So a couple of things, and just to take a step back about um, um, different different types of care in different regions, um, ASCO has um, put together a, a set of committees to develop guidelines that are resource stratified for cervical cancer. Um, so there was one for HPV vaccination. There was one for um, secondary prevention with um, screening and diagnosis, which I was part of, and then a, a third one that was actually for for, cerv for cervical cancer treatment. And those address that issue of, um, you know, based on the the resource setting uh, and based on the availability of the labs and the personnel, there are different recommendations for how to treat cervical cancer. So I think one of the things we can do is really continue to um, use those guidelines, educate um, uh, providers in all the regions of the world that these guidelines exist and um, and to follow them. Um, the other thing that I, I think is very exciting is um, that through the IGCS and, and also through some programs here at MD Anderson, we've been running um, telementoring sessions called Project ECHO. And these are um, essentially tumor boards. Um, we hold most of them monthly. We have them with various regions in the world including all our sites that are part of the global curriculum. Um, and this is where we have experts from around the world, gynecologic oncologists as well as pathologists, radiation oncologists, who you know give up an hour of their time. We do it all using Zoom, which is a Skype-like technology. Call in, and then we have um, cases presented um, by um, different folks, and then with expert opinions from um, again, all the specialists from around the world. So that's a, a great way to, to participate. Um, you can do that through the IGCS or just contacting me directly. We have one with Vietnam, we have one with Kenya, we have one with Belarus, with Kazakhstan, uh, a Latin America one, um, which has been very successful where on, you know, it's held once a month and we will have people from 10, 12, 14 countries calling in. Um, that one's held in Spanish. Um, we have one held with Mozambique that's held in Portuguese. Um, so there are lots and lots of opportunities for people to get involved without having to actually travel to a different country, but really just to, to call in um, from work, from home. Um, all you need really is, uh, is a Wi-Fi connection. That sounds like a fantastic project. Uh, you mentioned a number of societies working on, on some of these projects. Do you find that these societies are working in collaboration with each other, or are they working in parallel to help alleviate these issues at the global level? I think a little bit of both. Um, and, you know, we're a pretty small community of gynecologic oncologists, and most of us are members of all of these societies. Um, I'm obviously primarily involved with the IGCS, but also do a lot with ASCO and with SGO. 
Um, but I think that, that what's really needed is for all the societies to sort of collaborate in these areas and maybe really determine what fits best with, with which society instead of having multiple parallel efforts. Because in the end, there's only so many of us um, and, and so many hours in the day. So I think, I think that there, there definitely is some collaboration, but there, there's room for much, much more collaboration among the societies. Now, switching gears a little bit, in the beginning you talked a little bit about training. And um, obviously in high-resource countries, the training of gynecologic oncologists uh, is very structured. Um, what can you tell us about uh, the training in low-resource uh, regions of the young residents or, or fellows? And, um, and where do you see the, the gaps or the areas for improvement? Yeah, so I think it's it's highly um, variable. Um, our focus with the IGCS program has been on the lower resource settings that really have no um, uh, official training in gynecologic oncology. So in a way, it's almost a little bit easier because there is no current training program specializing in gynecologic oncology. Um, I think some of the gaps are... Um, uh, in surgery and surgical skills. Um, the other one is many of the countries we're working in actually don't even have radiotherapy. Um, so again, it's adapting the guidelines for how we treat uh, cervical cancer. So at MD Anderson, the standard for locally advanced cervical cancer is chemoradiation. If we don't have radiation, um, then what's the, the next best option? And many of our colleagues in Peru, Aldo Lopez and others have really been looking at using neoadjuvant chemotherapy in those settings um, because there either isn't radiation therapy or they just don't have the capacity to treat all the patients um, with that disease. So I think it's also having to adapt the training to um, what's available locally. Um, you know, the, the program that we have through the IGCS is a mentoring program with um, uh, uh, mentors from high-resource settings, but then also a local mentor in-country. Um, one great example of it is in, in Guatemala, Eric Estrada is our fellow. He has a local mentor in Julio Lau, who trained in Mexico, um, but then is also supported by Rene Pareja and his team in Colombia. So everyone's in Latin America, um, but really you know, working across the, the, the different countries to, to be able to create formal training in Guatemala so that um, the, the people there who are interested in gynecologic oncology don't have to leave the country to, to receive adequate training. And you talked a little bit about mentorship, and as the chair of the Training and Mentoring Committee for the IGCS, um, how can those who are interested in becoming a mentor get involved? Yeah, so the first step um, is actually probably to participate in one of our Project ECHO uh, telementoring um, uh, programs. It's a great way that's, that's low... Um, you know, not a, a huge commitment to begin with, but to join and to get to know um, folks that are that are looking for mentors or that are, are starting programs. So that's certainly one way. Um, the other way uh, people have approached us is if they're already doing some informal training and mentoring um, with someone internationally is to see if maybe that program is a fit um, for, for our, our curriculum. Well, Kathleen, in closing, I wanted to commend you for the fantastic work you've been doing. What are, what are your goals moving forward in the future? 
So one of the big goals is really to, to grow our gynecologic oncology training uh, program in regions of the world that don't have it. Um, and I think a, another personal goal of mine is really um, to try and get all these leaders in the country who are becoming the gynecologic oncologists also to serve as advocates and experts uh, to really work with the local governments and ministries of health um, and other groups uh, to really put in place prevention programs. Um, you know, HPV vaccination is incredibly effective, safe, um, and every day we're not vaccinating women in all these countries, including our own, is, you know, future, future deaths from cervical cancer that are completely preventable. So I think sort of combining the training of specialists in gynecologic oncology, which is, which is critical, but also with really um, trying to work with uh, local governments to improve their screening and prevention. And that's not just internationally, that's also, you know, here in Texas where we still have um, high rates of cervical cancer and low rates of HPV vaccination. Well, Kathleen, thank you very much. It's been absolutely a pleasure. This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez for the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Thank you.